This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Speaking Out of Place, Getting Our Political Voices Back by David Palumbo Lu. Speaking Out of Place asks us to reconceptualize both what we think politics is and our relationship to it. As Astra Taylor puts it, this book is a radical and original reassessment of democratic deliberation and political transformation. Instead of treating free speech in simplistic terms, Palumbo Lu examines the triad of voice, place, and space. This holistic analysis helps us understand who gets heard, where, and why. True democracy, Palumbo Lu shows, is a raucous polyphony, a chorus emanating from specific communities and contexts and struggles that reverberates widely, unsettling and challenging those accustomed to controlling the terms of the debate. Find Speaking Out of Place at haymarketbooks.org. Speaking Out of Place, Getting Our Political Voices Back, by David Palumbo Lu. Out now from Haymarket Books. Also, some exciting news. We have a big live dig show coming up in New York City on the recent upsurge in labor militancy and what it means for the future of the labor movement and left politics. It's May 10th, 7 p.m. at the People's Forum. I'll be speaking to Chris Smalls of the Amazon Labor Union, Jazz Brizak of Starbucks Workers United, Alex Press of Jacobin, Luis Feliz Leon of Labor Notes, and perhaps more. That's this upcoming May 10th, 7 p.m. at the People's Forum. Tickets are free, but you do need a ticket. I will post a link to the Eventbrite in the show notes. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. When we talk about the problems of wealth concentration and racial and economic inequality, it's often about issues like regressive taxation, the power of organized labor, or lack thereof, housing segregation, or property ownership. Destin Jenkins' book, The Bonds of Inequality, Debt in the Making of the American City, makes a powerful argument about why and how municipal finance has to be at the center of this conversation. How states and cities are funded is an incredibly important issue for anyone concerned with combating the barely fettered powers of neoliberal capitalism in the United States. The ubiquitous and, in many ways, invisible dependence of American cities on municipal debt to fund basic infrastructure, which means dependence on profiteering Wall Street intermediaries, has devastating consequences for democracy and entrenches spatial, racial, and wealth disparities. A recent report from Acre, the Action Center for Race and the Economy, showed that American cities pay $160 billion annually on interest payments alone for their municipal debt. That money flows straight from Main Street to Wall Street, siphoning resources from the very communities that need them the most. Jenkins' book helps us understand how this dynamic emerged. 
The Bonds of Inequality takes a deep dive into the history of municipal finance with a focus on San Francisco, and in doing so, demonstrates that indebtedness has been a tool of wealth extraction and domination since well before the neoliberal turn in the 1970s. This conversation helps to bring the hidden strings of debt into focus so that we can free ourselves from them, so we can begin the work of developing other more egalitarian and socially enriching ways of financing and provisioning the things we need to survive and thrive. Destin is our guest today, and he's interviewed by our just wonderful go-to guest host, Astra Taylor. Astra is a great interviewer, and I'm sure that you do appreciate hearing from an interviewer who is not me every now and again. Having Astra as a guest host also makes my job running this podcast a lot more manageable, freeing up a week here or there for me to get off the podcast production hamster wheel and get ahead on my work, preparing for future podcasts and occasionally taking a vacation or something. The reason that The Dig can afford to pay Astra to help us out And the reason we can afford to put this podcast out, period, is because listeners just like you listening now support us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you can afford to do so, make a contribution of any size and get our excellent weekly newsletter by email. Contributions of $10 or more a month get you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or a dig mug. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Please contribute now if you haven't already and can afford to. Okay, here's Destin Jenkins, interviewed by Astra Taylor. Destin Jenkins teaches history at Stanford University. He writes about debt, inequality, and the history of racial capitalism, and is the author of The Bonds of Inequality, Debt and the Making of the American City. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer, and, of course, the Digs go-to guest host. She is the director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. She is also co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Dustin Jenkins, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much, Asha. Pleasure to be here. So as you may know, uh, when I'm not guest hosting The Dig, I am organizing with the Debt Collective, the country's first debtors union. And we always try to make clear that we're not just a union for people who literally have debt, who personally have debt, but actually for everyone, because We all live in communities that are indebted, right? And your book really helps us understand this. You know, we attend indebted schools. We, you know, are are, uh, living in municipalities that are paying off uh, bonds to to Wall Street. So this is, you know, a ubiquitous issue, um, but it's really invisible. And your book, The Bonds of Inequality, you know, it puts municipal bond financing at the center of a broader discussion, a discussion of inequality, capitalism, neoliberalism, financialization, and racism. And you examine San Francisco as your case study. So we're going to get to San Francisco in a bit, but I want to begin broadly. So before we get into all those things, you know, I just want to make sure that listeners have the building blocks of this, because I don't know if I would have understood a lot that was in your book if I hadn't been 
so deeply invested in this this stuff over the years with the debt collective. So, you know, just really simply, what is a bond? Uh, and why do our cities and institutions have to issue them? And how do they do that? <laughs> right? So basically, what is a bond? How do they happen? And why? Great question. Uh, set of questions, really. Uh, so, so the first way I think folks should understand a bond is this basically a loan as uh, issued by uh, in the case of the United States con- context, uh, states and their political subdivisions, which could be cities, can sometimes be counties or especially created districts, authorities. Uh, really, we see the kind of proliferation, especially post-World War II, of all these different kind of political entities with borrowing powers. And they issue a bond, basically a loan, by borrowing uh, from wealthy individuals who are looking to secure tax-exempt interest income. That's the primary draw, uh, not so much yield. I mean, folks could chase yield, higher yields elsewhere through other kinds of investments. But, uh, you know, the promise of being able to shield one's capital from, in the post-World War II context, high federal marginal tax rates. So that's going to draw wealthy individuals and also institutional investors who are usually described as conservative investors, folks, uh, whether you're talking about certain kinds of insurance companies. So um, it basically, uh, municipality issues a loan, issues a bond, borrows uh, a chunk of funds to finance infrastructure projects most commonly. So if we're thinking about sewage systems, water systems, uh, in some cases, parks, recreational facilities, uh, public housing projects, public schools, basically trying to fund what we call the public through the private bond market, which we can you know, talk a little bit more about the public-private distinction there. And even our most sacred public goods, as, as a colleague, John Robinson, has described, is very much tied to financial, private financial arrangements. So that is what a bond is issued for. Why? To to kind of spread the cost of these major capital improvement projects over, say, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, So we start to think about municipalities as not really having a treasure chest of funds from which to draw to kind of finance these large scale projects. You spread the cost of a project over 20 or 15 to 20 years, depending on the temporality or the the timing of of the bond issue. And so the point is to kind of spread debt service payments out over time. Uh, Usually it's synced around tax collections or uh, other ways of generating revenue to ultimately pay back bondholders. And how it's done is a very great, great question, layered question. In some cases, uh, bond issues are put before local voters, right, who approve an issue, who say, yes, we want to be indebted for X amount of time uh, to fund this project or some other project. In some cases, the bond is issued without voter approval at all to, again, do the same, to, to fund the same kind of purposes. And uh, in the end, I mean, the bond might be held, so to speak, in the investment portfolios of someone who lives far removed from the city itself. Uh, And in between, you have financial institutions who underwrite the bond, you have uh, municipal bond attorneys who basically validate the the kind of obligation to say, yes, this is a legal obligation. You have credit rating analysts who survey and evaluate the finances and likelihood of of the ability uh, of bondholders to be repaid on time. So you have a whole set of actors who are who are, you know, kind of you could say middlemen, brokers, underwriters, but who ultimately uh, help to facilitate the raising of the capital and allowing a municipality to, to fund its critical infrastructure. 
Excellent. Right. I mean, that's, that is ubiquitous. I mean, it's schools, it's sewage, it's the stuff of daily life. It's all around us. So this is what we say, even if you're not personally indebted, your, your community is in this, in these ways. I've heard you say that your interest in this topic was shaped by 2008, by the mortgage crisis. And, you know, I think that's sort of my origin story as well with getting involved in the politics of debt. And, you know, I'm thinking about how in the wake of the crisis, the right wing still dominated the terms of the political debate. And now we're in a, there's more contestation, but there was a debt ceiling crisis soon after 2008. The idea was, you know, the national deficit is the problem and it's spurred by entitlement. So too much social spending puts the nation in, in debt. We need to tighten our belts. And so one thing we were trying to do is really push back on that uh, and the misleading analogy between household indebtedness and, and public indebtedness at the federal level and to say the individual household is nothing like the federal government, <laughs> right? We don't have the power to print money the way the federal government does. But when you zoom down to the levels you're talking about, the analogy is actually more accurate because our municipalities can't print dollars. And so they do face these financial constraints, constraints that are really political <laughs> and, and problematic, but those constraints are there. So I was wondering if you could sort of speak about that and these sort of phony conservative morality around debt, the belt tightening, you know, the debtors are the problem, um, and maybe how you're just, you know, in an ideological frame, how your work is in conversation with that, because that is certainly being contested compared to that period, but they keep trying to rear their head. <laughs> yeah, I, I, another, another great question really on the morality of debt and municipal debt in particular, I mean, the whole language around belt tightening, you see uh, certainly, I mean, I think less so around that, that discourse is less salient in this particular context that is over the last, you know, 10 years or so, because I mean, it's not much else to, to tighten, right? I mean, the, the sort of muscle, fat, whatever, whatever the discourse uh, and metaphors and analogies are, are salient at the time has been, has been cut to the bone. Uh, in, in, in the context of austerity and retrenchment over the last 30, 40 years, to say nothing of the previous dosage uh, imposed on municipalities. So um, what, you, what you did see, though, is in the 1930s, for instance, the insistence that, right, we're thinking about the Great Depression, that municipalities need to tighten their belts. So that discourse is there, although we're thinking about the power of workers, right, in the 1930s, which are saying now is not quite the time to tighten the belt. Actually, now's the time to borrow for the sake of expanding a public works project, to get it, getting folks back to work. Uh, and so some of the stuff I saw in the late 1930s in particular was the, the sense of borrowing for relief purposes, borrowing, issuing a bond through financial mar markets to be sure, but borrowing in order to get folks back to work. So even from city government, although you had surely some folks who were insisting on a kind of discourse of austerity, a discourse of budget uh, and belt tightening, uh, you still had the sense that you have to actually get folks back to work through an expansive public works project. We don't really see that program now, although, you know, maybe some could say the kind of build back better is, is hearkening back to that. But um, you, you, you saw more of a contestation in the 1930s, even as folks were calling for austerity, you had folks saying, actually, we need to get folks back to work. But even beyond the, the belt tightening, you have the morality of municipal debt going back to the late 
19th century, this sense. And really, this is a fascinating story that, that I kind of take up in the book and some, some writings elsewhere, where we see the sense that the United States was becoming a nation of rascals, that municipalities were being ruled by a council of quote unquote buccaneers. And this is the language you see in the nation, 1874, 1877, in the context of the economic uh, depression and fallout post 1873. And they're talking about, that is to say, creditors are talking about municipalities who are repudiating debt, repudiating older obligations, and pushing the United States, a reconstructing nation beyond the bounds of civilization by refusing to honor its claims. So, you know, the idea that, you know, the morality of indebtedness uh, stretches way back into the late 19th century. And, And the biggest difference is, whereas in the present moment, I make the point in the book, we have bondholders who are supreme, whose, whose claims are honored, even if they have to extend an obligation through a refinancing arrangement, they get paid usually no matter what. In the late 19th century, when you have these moral claims around municipal indebtedness, it speaks spoke to the profound weakness of creditors, because in many cases, uh, even if they took their claims to state courts, state courts often ruled in favor of the municipality. And so what you would see is basically these kind of settlements proving to be a hollow remedy. So in the late 19th century, even though you see this discourse of rascality, this discourse of buccaneers, of of folks who refuse to honor their obligations, it really came from, in my view, a a place of profound weakness because again, state courts were uh, not really a friend and ally. Bondholders didn't really begin to form protective committees into the late 19th and early 20th centuries. uh, And you didn't really have the kind of building out of of a surveillance mechanism, really, with Moody's, Standards, Poor's, Dun & Bradstreet's, able to monitor the finances of municipalities and report on uh, reckless political experiments, whether it be through municipal ownership or forms of municipal socialism. So anyway, the the late 19th, we see uh, the kind of morality of municipal debt go way back into the, even one could say even the the, the antebellum period into the present. Uh, But at different moments, the morality of indebtedness speaks to the relative strength and weakness of creditors which which I think is also an important story in kind of highlighting the supremacy, uh, uh, a change over time story of the supremacy of bondholders in this moment. That is such a fascinating history. I mean, and I wanted to get at this this later, but maybe we can just mention it now, which is, you know, the story of financialization is often told taking off in the 1970s. And so you're saying, no, the politics of municipal finance goes way back. And obviously there was a pivot because the hands of those creditors has really strengthened over the last few decades to the point where default is off the table, you say. Right. Not only, well, default is, defaults happen. So, so an important distinction, and, and this, this is made clear, you see this in the 1930s, a distinction between default and repudiation. So default might be a mispayment by a day uh, or, you know, a few days. But defaults, one could say, I mean, there seems to be, at least in the financial world, uh, more room for a default. You could say it happens. It happens. Oops, exactly. (laughs) Oops, we forgot to get the the paperwork in time. Or oops, the bank closed at 430. It was a holiday. You know, my bad. Right. So there's a bit more room and defaults happen, uh, as we know. 
But what really falls by the wayside is repudiation, right? The sense that when, when we can talk, and I've talked to your, your friend and colleague, Hannah Pell, about the difference between repudiation versus abolition versus canceling the debt, but repudiation as a strategy, the sense that we're not honoring these claims falls by the wayside. Really, I start to see it in, uh, fall by the wayside in the late 1920s, start to see more calls for absorption of bad debts, of older debts by the federal government. Um, we can talk about who, were, who, who was making those claims. Usually it was a set of uh, racists in the South who were deploying a kind of propaganda of history to say that Reconstruction era debts were uh, unjust, odious debts and that it should actually be the federal government to absorb and basically bail out the new South. But nevertheless, moving away from repudiation to absorption uh, in the late 1920s, uh, but by, by certainly by the post-World War II period, the sense that repudiation you know, is it basically shooting oneself in the foot because again, by that point, the surveillance mechanisms uh, it, are in place and creditors um, usually have pretty strong hand um, over, over municipalities. So anyway, I think that that's, that's just some broader context of like the, the, the fate of repudiation as a, as a tactic. And, you know, you asked a question about financialization and even maybe even neoliberalism. I mean, the book in the introduction kind of maybe I guess the best way to put it is I don't necessarily see the need to rely on those broad meta narratives, whether it be neoliberalism or financialization, because for the main reason is if you think about somebody like Laura Bear, who's written about austerity in, in India, and one of the points she makes is that austerity in her context is rooted in the changing mechanisms and relationships of indebtedness, which is to say that like what we see in the 1970s, at least when it comes to municipal debt and austerity and retrenchment that, that is related to, to indebtedness, that's not financialization per se, it's changing interest rates. It's, you know, the, the borrowing context, which has changed, which takes us back into obligations incurred in the 1940s and the 1950s, well before the, the so-called so neoliberal turn, which is, again, not to say that there's not an ideological shift, not to say that financial services become, uh, don't become more important, but it is to say that I don't necessarily think we need those big narratives to think fundamentally about changing relationships uh, of indebtedness. Uh, in the terms of indebtedness. So that that's kind of just a little bit on financialization. But again, um, change over time is is kind of the thing that we need to focus in on. And, and uh, debt is a great way to kind of think about not just the changing morality of indebtedness, the changing strategies of indebtedness, how creditors organize. You know, one thing that shifts over time, you know, is exactly that, that morality you're talking about. There was a, I just want to quote this one sentence that you write, a borrower's duress is a financier's bonanza, because I think that's the morality we want to highlight, right? Is that people profiteer from the need, not just the need of communities, but but actually their suffering, their desperation. Um, so that would definitely be a theme. So your work really powerfully shows that the municipal bond market structures racial privileges, it entrenches spatial neglect, and it distributes wealth and power concentrates wealth and power. And as we've been discussing, you know, our communities are very dependent on financiers, rating agencies, uh, these markets to fund their basic infrastructure. 
And these, I just want to name how lucrative these deals are. So Acre Action Center for Race and the Economy has done a lot of great research on this and estimates that nationally, these municipal debt deals transfer over $160 billion a year from taxpayers to the investors and to Wall Street. And I was just wondering, you know, do you have any contemporary examples before we jump more uh, into the history and example of San Francisco I don't know, sort of concrete examples from the present that sort of stand out. I mean, I was just reading about Flint, Michigan and the toxic water there and actually how a bond deal helped lock residents into drinking poisoned water that they they were then paying for. I don't know, just a, a sort of example that might drive home the stakes. The importance of that report, the work that Acre does, number one. I mean, there's stuff around police brutality, bonds, and basically, you know, extending the insights around the debt collective, which, you know, and the focus on student debt, consumer debt, to thinking about municipalities, uh, thinking about police brutality and kind of diving into the the kind of uh, the forms of redistribution from working class black folks, oftentimes upward, uh, upward to, to wealthy individuals and institutional investors. But there was a point there in in what you read about taxpayers, right, and wealth being pulled and and drawn from taxpayers and sent upwards. And I just wanted to kind of take a step back, right? That really does focus in um, or center even two things. One, a taxpayer identity. And my colleague Raul Carrillo has um, really pushed us to think about the limitations of a taxpayer identity, the racialization of the discourse of being a taxpayer. Uh, the great work of Camille Walsh, for instance, has thought has you know shown that, um, demonstrated that. Um, so the limits of a taxpayer identity, centering a taxpayer identity uh, to make you know particular claims on the state against Wall Street. And, and otherwise, um, but it also misses the kind of broader empirical realities, which is not just taxpayer funds, whether it be derived from property taxes or sales taxes, but we also see in some cases uh, bonds backed by criminal fees and fines, uh, which technically is not derived from taxation. It's another form of conscription of people's funds in order to pay back bonds uh, and pay back bondholders. So, you know, just to kind of specify there a little bit, I don't mean to quibble there, but to think broadly about the different ways in which debt is serviced uh, and to think about the limits of a taxpayer identity. But I think also the point is fees and fines, right? So so that is one way in which we could think about the, the important conversation around criminalization, mass incarceration, uh, and the ways in which even folks who aren't sent up for, uh, sent away for for uh, tremendous and, and draconian stretches of time, um, who are still brought into courts, forced to pay various fees and fines, and that then becomes part of the revenue base that then goes uh, kicks uh, gets kicked out to bondholders. So that's one way in which we could think about municipal indebtedness uh, and also the very important work around um, incarceration and, and breaking down incarceration, the fiscal dimensions of incarceration, not just issuing a bond to build a prison facility, but also fees and fines forming an important revenue source uh, through which bondholders are paid. Yes. And you mentioned the police brutality bonds, which are bonds that are issued to have funds to pay damages, essentially, for police brutality. So then you have investors profiting from that. There's um there's a, a great song by, by Nas. Um, I think it's called Black Zombies. And he has a line where he says something to the effect of, we run and ask for reparations, then they hit us with tax. You know, and it's a, it, and I've used that before because that's an example of 
folks wronged by harmed lives destroyed by police brutality, then being conscripted into being debt servicers in order to receive reparations for the harms and violations done against them, right? So there's like the ways in which like, it's not just about reparations, yes or no, but which revenue source and how are working folks who were victimized by police brutality in this case, uh, perhaps going to be conscripted into an arrangement in which they pay for their reparation. And so that is, um, you know, the, the great work from Acre to kind of, you know, show the transfer of wealth, uh, you know, and a little bit of Nas. And I have to do that. I'm from Queens, so I have to have to give give Nas a shout out. I mean, I remember when this first started to land with me and it was actually during Occupy Wall Street. So when, before the debt collective even really was a, a twinkle in our eyes, but someone said, you know, Instead of taxing wealthy residents, we borrow from them and then give them tax deductions, right? And that's and that I think for me that insight that you know, of course, communities need revenue, and instead of taking it, <laughs> you're paying rich people for the privilege of sort of accessing their ac- accessing their money. But that's not how we describe our social reality. Um, so yeah, let's finally let's go to San Francisco because you you. That is where your story is centered. And through San Francisco, you tell a larger parable. I mean, you make the case in the book that really what you're talking about in these debt arrangements you know, have global implications. We see them you know, on a much larger level. At the same time, what's interesting about San Francisco is that it's got a lot of uniqueness, right? It doesn't, you say in the introduction, doesn't fit into the standard story of deindustrialization. And so that it's kind of breaks the mold in some ways. So, so I'd love to just hear about what drew you to the example of San Francisco and what is that significance and why is it such a, a, a powerful place to tell the story of how lenders came to rule over our cities? Yeah. So, so I, I guess I'll begin with, um, I mean, the general question, how I came to the project and to focus in on San Francisco. I mean, you know, for anybody who's written a book, they'll tell you the, the routes, the, the pathways charted, a few steps on one and then like abandoning very quickly. Uh, so, you know, the, the project did not start out as a book about municipal debt. It did focus, it, it did begin really uh, interested in questions of redevelopment and gentrification in San Francisco. Um, but it was, it was uh, the municipal debt stuff came much later. But what drew me to San Francisco was actually um, my dad and I, we go on, we go uh, to different baseball stadiums around the country. We have since 2005. Hopefully we'll be able to do it this year. Last two years interrupted by COVID and now we have a strike uh, or really a lockout uh, and a strike. Um, so, something, you know, in between. Um, so anyway, we we kind of see this as like a sociological experiment. Like we look around, we check out the architecture. We think about, you know, for instance, when we went to Cincinnati, we thought about the rust belt, older economy and industrial economy. Uh, and layered atop that was the kind of ghost of financialization. We would go downtown and these commercial office buildings were totally empty. So you had two different kind of political economies uh, really hollowed out and you saw it manifested in the landscape. And then you also saw the outsized importance of sports and local commerce with the downtown baseball stadium. So anyway, that that's something we've done. And when we went to, uh, we were in San Francisco because my dad moved me in uh, to begin graduate school at Stanford. Uh, we walked from the ferry building uh, down Market Street and we looked around and we did not see any black folks in uh, during, our, during our, our walk until we got to the Tenderloin. 
And it was just like, you know, it was just chaos. It was chaos on the street. It was just, it didn't look right. It didn't look healthy. It didn't look like that's where folks need to be. Um, and certainly it looked like it was hard to ignore that p these folks were being neglected. And that's where you saw all the black folks at, at the time. Um, certainly you have black folks living in Bayview, Hunters Point, the Western edition and, and, and so forth. But um, so basically what drew me to San Francisco as a research project, as a site, was to think about the story of the city by the bay, of the city that you know knows how, the city that uh, has, quote unquote, gotten it right in terms of tolerance in terms of cultural experimentation, whether you think about the summer of love, uh, the city that has gotten it right in terms of progressive policies, but yet thinking about the particular place of black folks in this economy, in this political establishment, um, and, and trying to think about, is that a contradiction of liberalism? Is that uh, a fulfillment of, of, liberal, of a certain kind of liberalism, uh, colorblind in particular? Uh, and so that's what drew me to San Francisco, was to really think about the place of black folks in this, in, in this city that, quote unquote, got it right. Uh, and you know, San Francisco is interesting because uh, for those reasons, but also, and I say this in the book, it's it's a really great case study to look at the power of bondholders over time and um, the kind of um, the consequences of structural dependence on the bond market. Because again, in San Francisco, as you as you mentioned at the beginning, it doesn't have the story. It's not a Rust Belt story, right? It's not a story of Detroit, Cleveland, Milwaukee. It's not a story of uh, of the Sun Belt, even. Uh, in terms of the military industrial complex, though certainly you have, you know, the, the military is very important in the Bay Area during World War II. But it's a it's a it's actually a city that in the, you know, as early as I, I found it as the early 1950s, beginning to deepen its ties to finance, insurance, and real estate, right? Seeing the fire sector as an important source of local economic growth, as trying to as a way to keep white collar white professionals from either leaving to go to the suburbs, keeping them downtown to work in close proximity, um, or building out the kind of amenities around the downtown financial sector uh, that could be a nice draw for, for white suburbanites often. So this is a city that, quote unquote, again, kind of gets it right, or maybe is ahead of the curve of other cities who, uh, in the 1980s onwards, who would begin to turn to a certain type of tourism, financial services, and so forth. But nevertheless, by the 1980s, you still see these city officials going to Wall Street, going to New York, uh, and trying to perform their credit worthiness, trying to suggest the importance of, and in some cases being explicit around potential revenue derived from a new baseball stadium or a new convention center. Uh, and so you see, for instance, also in the late 1990s, Willie Brown, uh, the first black mayor of the city, by that point in time, you hear, you have the, the bond buyer, uh, which is a crucial uh, organ of the, the bond business, basically say about, about Willie Brown that like, you know, it's fine being a black mayor, right? So we think about the changing racial politics in the post-civil rights era, right? It's fine at that point for black people to be in political positions of power. But the issue is for the bond buyer is will Willie Brown control social spending? Will he more or less betray some of his constituencies, white, uh, white uh, black working class constituencies uh, who may be demanding greater expansion of social services. 
Uh, and so if he is able to do that, then San Francisco's credit will remain sterling and, and, and just fine. But if not, well, then we have a concern about San Francisco. So anyway, there's a way in which here you have the city with a black mayor. Here you have uh, the city that ties itself to financial services, but nevertheless has to perform and hit the evaluative rubrics and hold the line on certain kinds of spending, prioritize certain kinds of uh, bondholder, uh, certain kinds of uh, infrastructure and social service projects through bond finance. That makes it very similar to the predicaments of cities elsewhere. And that's the story. So in other words, you know, to my mind, the kind of inequalities that we see, uh, austerity, retrenchments that we see in so many parts of the country um, are rooted in, going back to the earlier point, the changing mechanisms of debt and deindustrialization, the inequalities that derive from, that flow from deindustrialization are layered atop what is at base, the structural dependence of cities on a predatory extractive bond market. And so San Francisco to me was a really great, important, great and important case study to make that point about, you know, inequalities that we often attribute to, again, neoliberalism, uh, other kinds of meta narratives is actually um, very much um, and perhaps uh, mostly primarily rooted in questions of real estate and, and the bond market in particular. Let's talk about the real estate uh, example, because you have a chapter that explores the the double meaning of the word shelter, right? So these debt deals as a form of a tax haven, a tax shelter, and the fact that these arrangements are totally implicated in our housing, whether it's mortgage finance, private housing, but also public housing. Uh, I want to quote you here. The deterioration of public housing projects was taken as proof of the failures of socially oriented public policies rather than as a consequence of a structural arrangement that from the beginning privileged the claims of bondholders. So you've already laid out a little bit why bond bondholders would even be involved in public housing to access the necessary revenue. But then how did this this spiral kick off? What are its meanings? What does that mean for actual people who live in San Francisco? Yeah. So, so just as a little bit of context, um, so you start to see with the Housing Act of 37 and then kind of re-upped in a kind of more, um, a more robust form of, of debt financing for public housing, in particular takeoff after the Housing Act of 1949 such that by July 1951, you have folks in the financial press highlighting the importance of what were described as new housing authority bonds. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the, the, I won't bore the listeners, but more or less the idea is that, you know, local housing authorities will uh, enter into a contractual arrangement with the federal government. We'll use that as collateral and security to borrow through the bond market, presumably at lower interest rates. Um, and so that's one way in which revenue uh, funds are generated far quickly. Uh, and the idea is that revenue from tenants in some cases, but also funds appropriated by Congress will, will ultimately be the revenue source that allows for bondholders to be made whole. Um, and so that is a kind of, you know, structural story of how many public housing projects post 49 are financed and built. Um, but what you see is, um, and this goes to your question about like how that arrangement affected folks who lived in public housing projects. So this reliance on the bond market, maybe it makes sense in the context of low interest rates. But by 1966, 67, as interest rates are rising, now in order to finance 
basic operations improvements, uh, the installation of new windows and the, the servicing of, of elevators, for instance, just to name a few examples, uh, has to come through a market that is charging a great deal just to borrow. Okay, so what does that mean? Do you forestall certain improvements? Do you delay maintenance because the cost to borrow is too high? Uh, and so that is the kind of structural context, for lack of a better term, that you know we see uh, Black folks, brown folks, poor folks in public housing projects forced to live, forced to sort of live and walk through stairways that are poorly lit. Uh, to take elevators that don't work. And, you know, this really, um, this point kind of crystallized for me, that is to say that the consequences of uh, these housing authorities relying on the bond market and the cost, in, in, in particular, the cost of bar the rising cost of borrow kind of came home when I was doing some political organizing in New York, because I was finishing up graduate school and was just trying to follow and participate as best I could in the wake of the murder of Akai Gurley. This was a black man who was murdered by a NYPD police officer. Uh, and I think the, the story is something where the bullet went off, hit the wall, ricocheted and, and killed Akai Gurley. Uh, and, and so, you know, of course, rest in peace to Akai Gurley and, and, you know, salute to his family. But that was a link between, right, the poor infrastructure, folks having to walk down dimly lit stairwells because that was part of the defense that the officer could not see, right, could not see as he was doing these vertical patrols. Akai Gurley perhaps taking the stairs instead of the elevator, right? So here you have the choices that folks are making clashing with a form of policing in the case of vertical patrols. And you could think about why it is folks are in the stairwell, why the stairwells are, are dimly lit, why folks are not taking elevators. And were there actually the kinds of robust investments in public housing projects, might Akai Gurley still be living? And so it was really thinking about policing, uh, the kind of the, the human consequences of austerity that pushed me back to think about, well, how, why is it that these projects have become so divested, underfunded uh, to begin with? Um, and to me, a crucial and, and critical flashpoint was uh, the rising cost of borrow in the late 1960s. Right. And that really gets to this, the fact that, you know, quote unquote, public housing isn't public. It's not privatized fully, but it's as, and so say more, why, why do you, it, you know, it's not a private-public partnership. You know, it's a exploitative relationship opportunity for these these investors, right? It goes back to the sense, and, and you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm naive here. Maybe I'm just a historian who tries to think about what it is people thought they were doing at the time. And the argument around in the late '40s was you can actually raise. Okay, first off, it's it's it is important that post World War II. There was a commitment to expanding public housing projects in the public housing stock. We don't see that now. I mean, maybe you have folks, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and other folks who have insisted on, you know, expanding public housing. But I mean, that's for the last 30, 40 years. I mean, the idea that public housing you would invest in, public housing was seen as a failure. Right. You, you provide vouchers and Section 8s and other forms uh, to get folks out of the projects to avoid the so-called culture of poverty. I mean, we have been living in a, a milieu uh, in which the idea of investing in, in public housing is, is just off the table. It's an anthema. Right. So in the late 40s, late, in the lead up to the Housing Act of 49, you see folks actually say that we should invest in public housing projects. Now, the big elephant in the room is there's an idealized tenant. 
who's going to live in those public housing projects. And one can make the case that if it were the sense that it would be black folks, black and brown folks, who would remain in public housing projects, would we have seen the same kind of expansion and commitment to public housing projects post-World War II? Probably not, given what we know about this country's history. But, okay, there's a commitment to public housing projects. That is important. That's a big change. And the sense is, because of this commitment to public housing projects, the best way to raise funds and expand the stock is through the bond market. And you know, we can we can talk about the kind of morality of indebtedness. We can talk about power relations. And I agree with that. But one thing you can say is that financial markets are a uh, are perhaps the best way or at least the quickest way to raise a ton of funds. And, you know, especially when you compare it to grants, federal grants or federal loans, you think about the kind of deference to localism, which often meant that you had racist steering federal funds into privileged sectors. Uh, So we could think about the bond market as a way of actually accelerating and generating funds far more quickly um, to fund public housing projects. So that's a long way of saying that, like, I that's what folks thought they were doing which I think is important, right? Even as we can recognize that the overall arc is a prioritization of bondholders over the tenants who lived in public housing projects. Even if we could say that that arrangement, perhaps it made sense, ultimately did not work well for those who were seeking shelter in public housing projects, but it worked quite well for those who saw public housing projects and public housing debts as a form of shelter, as a way of sheltering their income from high marginal tax rates from the federal government. A phrase you use, and I just want you to speak to it a bit, is infrastructural investment in whiteness. So even as some communities are being dispossessed by these arrangements, I mean, the, the bond market works. It works for some people. And why is that Why is that phrase critical? Why did you, did you settle on it to describe these dynamics? Yeah. So another another great question. Thank you for um, the chance to to speak to this. So I, you know, was very much interested in folks writing about whiteness, George Lipsitz, Harris. I mean, you know, we can go on and on about folks who have written about not just whiteness as an ideological project, but the kind of material dimensions of whiteness in the form of, well, the basic form, the question of who lives, who dies, uh, which communities receive uh, resources and which do not. And so I was, you know, trying to think about that rich literature, that important literature. Um, and for me, the infrastructural investment in whiteness was a way of describing a particular compact, as I describe it, that emerged post-World War II, in effect, if not, you know, as a kind of explicit arrangement. And what I mean by the infrastructural investment in whiteness is to try to think about race and class and to think about, for instance, white workers and segregated building trades who are going to secure a segregated piece of the pie in the form of in- income and wages to build the physical infrastructure, again, the trains, the, the public trains, the streets, the sewage systems, uh, the parking garages on which a white middle class depends to consume. The stadiums. Come in, the stadiums, exactly, uh, to consume, all while kicking back rents or interest payments to a collection of upper class white folks in the United States who, again, are able to collect taxes and interest income. So the infrastructural investment in whiteness, and y'all forgive me, this is a bit cumbersome, is a way of describing an intra-racial cross-class compact 
that yielded dividends to white workers in segregated building trades, uh, white, a white middle class able to consume, uh, and an upper class able to secure interest payments um, based off of infrastructure projects that the city uh, prioritized. Yes, there's always this question. I mean, we, we take on debt, we seek credit because we want to expand the possibilities of the present. So some people get to benefit from this productive aspect and some people are subjected to the predatory aspect of debt, but debt is a complicated thing for sure. I just wanted to add that, I mean, the flip side of this is that debt was often, I talk about this in, in the book, I mean, debt, especially when issued by the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency, these urban renewal entities, was often used to clear neighborhoods Oftentimes, black neighborhoods or neighborhoods described as blighted or slums, designated urban renewal zones to clear these, excuse me, these entire areas of the folks who live there in order to attract the kind of right idealized tenants, residents, uh, most often, at least in San Francisco, white, white collar professionals. So debt, for instance, San Francisco Redevelopment Agency is going to issue uh, what was basically short term notes. Uh, and borrow from Bank of America and with the funds on hand, basically execute urban renewal projects, which James Baldwin, when he comes to San Francisco in 1963, describes as Negro removal, right? And so there we could see not just the infrastructural investment in whiteness in the form of white workers in building trades, white uh, middle-class suburbanites or white folks who, middle-class folks in the city who want to stay in the city and who consume and uh, a kind of white, wealthy, upper class who may live in the city, may not live in the city, who are able to t- uh, collect uh, in- income from a bond investment. But we also see the effects of, right, the transformation of borrowed funds in the form of displacement projects, right? Or the clearance of entire neighborhoods, uh, commercial landscapes, uh, really social ties and community uh, built up by Black folks in in San Francisco who had just arrived in many cases uh, to the city by the bay. So so there's a part of the infrastructural investment and then there's the divestment, right? They're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? The divestment, the displacement makes possible the emplacement of critical infrastructure that the city of uh, San Francisco deemed essential for avoiding the kind of the horrors of urban decline. One thing I've been thinking about lately, I mean, is you know, the, the investment is is literal, right? You're saying, you know, money is being borrowed, it's being spent on these things. But then there are also these regular people who have a have a bit of that bond, right? It's in their retirement funds or something. You know, I mean, they, these impl- like these these investments are spread out among huge numbers of people, and it's part of what buys people in <laughs> to a, a white supremacist system, right? Because that's their retirement fund, and untangling that is, you know, intense. Astra, it's it's a great observation, and, and if I may, I want to give just an example of of that intense entanglement. And this is some stuff I've been working on recently. I, it, it shows up at the end of the book in the in the epilogue. Anyway, it's thinking about the kind of financial uh, forensic accounting of black public sector workers in the mid-1960s in New York who wondered why it is their pensions were being used to underwrite the bonds of Southern segregated municipalities. And this is a phenomenal and often ignored, forgotten even, story of financial activism 
of black folks who were saying, wait a minute, our funds are ultimately buttressing segregation through pensions channeled through bond markets underwritten by financial institutions and insurance companies, right? It's a complicated web. That's why it goes back to your earlier question of like, how does this all happen? But you had actually the kind of uh, forensic accounting done by folks working for, writing for the Chicago Defender, the Amsterdam News, beginning to, to engage this question of the complicity, right? On the one hand, boycotting uh, certain financial institutions and utility companies in some cases and trying to support the Southern Black freedom struggle by donating, for instance, but also in an indirect way, in ways they didn't even see, uh, trying to figure out and and really divest their own pensions on which they depended from buttressing a, a segregationist regime that you know, was knocked down or weakened, I should say, by, by say, Brown v. Board. But post, you know, Brown v. Board, still you have, as Corny and AACP wondered, how it is that these Southern municipalities were still able to raise the funds to build segregated public schools, despite this historic ruling. So that entanglement, the ways in which folks are conscripted into a debt arrangement, and there's a way, the ways in which payments are spread over time where you pull for a little bit from this person, from that person, and how you look up and we're all somewhat complicit in, in affirming this system is a challenge. It is a challenge that folks have engaged in the past. We would be wise to revisit those forms of financial activism. And it's obviously stuff that you know you and, and your colleagues at the Debt Collective, y'all are on the front line and helping us think about this. And I just think about it, but try to figure out like how do we change the identity of being a debtor? How do we, you know, what does cancellation look like, abolition look like? So, you know, you guys are part of that tradition. And it is an important one that we should we should revisit because conscription, right? That's the difference, I think. And we could talk about this if you want, right? The difference between, say, municipal debt and you know student loan debt is there's a way way in which one is not even aware that you've been conscripted into a debt, a municipal debt arrangement. Especially if I move to a new locality, the bond was issued 20 years before. And I look at my tax bill, you know, and I say, wait a minute, what's this a bond issue, issue to fund X, Y, Z? I didn't vote on that, but I'm conscripted into it as a resident of a particular locality, right? So the conscription is different versus, say, for instance, I think, I'd love to hear what you think, versus, say, like, you know, a student loan, right? I mean, there's a bit more of a kind of transparency, even if the loan gets diced up, sold and securitized and sent over here and over there. And the struggle is to figure out, well, who actually owes, who do I actually owe? Like, who's this now sending me this notice? Um, but the municipal debt conscription is is really, really difficult to, to kind of disaggregate. Um, but it's in, it's really important work. It's, it's the work that I'm, I'm committed to and I've tried to, to engage um, since publishing the book. Yeah, I mean, uh, we could definitely go off on this. I mean, I think the cons conscription, I think, is actually a really excellent word, and, and you're making me think about it more. I'm going to start using it because there's it's it's not willed, right? There's a element of compulsion, and I would say student loans are like that. Even though you do ultimately sign on the dotted line at 17, just the exact <laughs> age, the age right. they conscript you into military yeah. service, you know. One of our phrases is, you know, people do not live beyond their means. They're denied the, the means to live. And market forces force people to take on these debts to survive. And and I think we, you know, there are there are techniques, municipal debt audits, you know, things that could help 
dramatize this forensic accounting you're talking about where communities could say, let's look at the books, right? And this is why the attention on budgets now I think is so important and why the call to defund the police, because it says, look at the budget. Where's the money going? These are the these are pub- matters of public concerns. And residents inherently see things differently than bondholders. And you have this throughout the book, the different modes of seeing. What is it, what does it mean to see like a credit rating agency? What does it mean? How are they assessing us and use the term abstraction? Uh, and how does their ability to, to see in this abstract way allow them to treat our communities as interchangeable commodities? Okay. Let me, I'm going to try to think about that as I give you an initial response, initial answer around modes of seeing. Because one of the things I, I try to historicize in the book is, you know, there's a reason why. So the book is really interested in like a number of questions, but two questions come to mind. The first is how it is and why it is cities are dependent on the bond market to begin with, right? How did that happen? That's not a natural timeless thing. Sure, one could trace that dependence back or at least that arrangement uh, on the bond market back to the early 19th century, late 19th century. But the Great Depression is an important moment where those ties are rekindled. Right, uh, and during during capitalism's greatest crisis, and you actually mentioned Glass Steagall mm-hmm. in a in a way that right. made me see it differently than I normally see it. If you want to say something quick there, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that was that was the kind of thinking about New Deal banking reform and how it is that commercial banks are still allowed to underwrite certain kinds of municipal bonds. So here you have the separation from commercial from investment banks, but not when it came. To certain kinds of debts. And so that was an important point in thinking about uh, the question of, and historicizing even, how it is that Bank of America, commercial bank, becomes the dominant player by the early 60s in the bond market. You know, you would, you would look at that fact and then ask, well, how is it that a commercial bank is involved in underwriting when, when Glass-Steagall separated the commercial from investment banks? And so uh, that was an important exception to to the Banking Act of 33 and, and important for the kind of subsequent development, uh, not just of the bond market, but also uh, states and municipalities along the West Coast, because that's going to be Bank of America's kind of ethic that like we're not we're 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 not Wall Street. We're, we could be part of the Wall Street of the West, but we can we can try to anchor our growth and expansion by way of thinking about the development of the West. But so that's an ex- the exception to Glass-Steagall allows for, opens up all of these various developmental possibilities and trajectories uh, throughout the West, the Sun Belt and so forth. So one big question was to think about, um, you know, kind of change over time in terms of bondholder power, change over time in terms of commercial banks, investment banks and their particular role in the bond market. But the other question was, how is it and why is it that folks generally really smart people haven't thought about the bond market and municipal debt as a powerful generator of inequality and not in, 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 in kind of insisting that as I do in the book, that that kind of insulation of bond finance from popular input, popular awareness is itself a historical uh, product, right? Or a product of historical decisions and contingent relations. The decision by city finance officers who are parlaying and exchanging and building with folks from Dun and Bradstreet and, and the kind of the, the other collection of rating agencies to figure out how do you actually insulate municipal debt from popular input and awareness. You see this in such publications uh, produced by the Municipal Finance Officers Association of the United States and Canada. Sorry, it's a long 
name, but that's, you can call it MFOA, um, where you actually have at these conferences and annual proceedings, the exchange of ideas between folks within the quote unquote financial sector and city officials. I say quote unquote because it's kind of a revolving door in some cases and a kind of building uh, a kind of shared uh, ethic around, you know, technocratic knowledge and the importance of insulating debt. Um, and so that is important to, you know, in relation to your question around modes of seeing. Because all we see, all voters see at most is a yes or no, approve this bond issue or reject it. And it could be far more expansive, right? One could say, you know, the, the what you see is should we uh, borrow to uh, spend on a public hospital or a certain amount of money for this school or that, or maybe thinking about what should cities spend their money on to begin with. But oftentimes all we see is a yes or no. Do you want to support it? Do you not want to support it? And so um, that all speaks to the kind of obfuscation, that the, the, the removal of matters of municipal debt from, from basic input. And there are reasons for that. I mean, if you take seriously the claims of, of, again, these technocrats in the late 30s who are trying to engage this insulation, their argument is that basically uh, municipal debt was used and abused by boss tweed and the kind of boss rule system. It was used and abused. It was a form of corruption. It was pay to play. It was like basically a way of building out a uh, patronage system that led to corruption. And many of the folks who are showing up to reform municipal debt in the thirties themselves see, well, they see themselves as progressive reformers, right? So they're part of that whole moment of trying to reform city government and so to give them maybe the benefit of that of what they thought was the sense that, like, you got to remove municipal debt from pu public and popular input and specifically special interest groups, real estate folks who are going to lobby for bond issues so that they can see their property values increase based off of some infrastructural improvement. But, you know, what you see is the privileging, ironically, of another special interest, financiers and creditors, even though they're never seen as an interest group. Uh, they're seen as actually articulating a set of technocratic ideas and, and have, having a shared set of expertise uh, that ultimately removes debt from, from popular input. Yeah, I'm thinking about how, you know, they, they want to be able to see Topeka, Kansas and compare it to Hendersonville, North Carolina or something, right? Like for them, that's, you know, they're in a, they're in a market that is ultimately global. And so they're having to compare these things and wrapping themselves in this veil of objectivity, engaging in this surveillance that you've been describing, where cities have to open up themselves, right? So, so residents, voters see almost nothing. They see yes or no, but the the lenders see a lot, right? I mean, I've never uh, seen it myself, but I can only imagine what they're they're getting. And then you get your, and this is this will be familiar to any listener, right? You're, you get a rating. It's just the way we, just like we have a credit score as individuals, and we kind of can live or die by it, right? Or, or, you know, the cost of borrowing go up if we, you know, if we're behind on our bills. I mean, this is what's, this is what's happening to our communities. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's a great summary. And, and you know, I, I won't belabor the point. I think I'll just say, you, you said that the, the, the creditors or surveyors of city finance who play a part in abstraction, right? Turning dynamic entities, cities, places where you know, people live into interchangeable commensurate commodities. Um, you said that they see a lot. And what's very interesting to me 
is that they see a lot, but a lot of times they see old stuff. So one of the most striking sources I found when I was writing the dissertation and thinking about the book uh, and writing the book was how in the 1950s, Moody's uh, produced these massive volumes. And, you know, it's it's like this is how my eyes got like terrible because they're like size six font, thou a thousand pages. And it's basically a compendium of the, you know, credit standing of municipalities with tax exempt borrowing pr privileges, large, small authorities, districts, cities, you name it. So yeah, at that point, I know I wanted to focus in on San Francisco. So in the 1950s, I'm reading the report uh, from Moody's on San Francisco, but it's still referring to data from the 1930s. Right? And so this is one of the points I try to think about. Like, and, and that was interesting for two reasons. One, you know, we should be careful that what they see is actually the most accurate representation. Part of that is the, their, their attempt to project power that they are actually able to secure information, assess the city for what it is. But the interesting thing is, so why are you relying on data and information from the late 30s, and which ultimately speaks to a city that no longer exists? That is to say, which has shifted its economy away from kind of industrial port economy, uh, port services towards financial services. Why, in other words, is stuff from 1937 relevant to stuff in 1955? Um, so what they do see a lot, but what they see is interesting. Sometimes it's obsolete. Sometimes it's archaic. And that's important because you have, again, going back to these conferences between city officials and folks from the financial sector and folks from the financial sector encouraging, asking for the submission of information because that's key to their business model. How do you maintain uh, accurate daily grasp on what is fundamentally a dynamic entity, i.e. a city where people come in, they leave, industries change. You need some way of securing that information so that you're not selling old obsolete information. And so um, anyway, that is a long way of saying like what they, they do see a lot, but they don't always see the most accurate things or they oftentimes see older stuff. And this is an important point uh, for us politically to, to try to denaturalize the sense that they are the best ways of, they have the best way of securing information, of consolidating that information, and thus the rating is an objective reflection or a reflection of objective conditions, when in many cases it's a reflection, as we see in the 60s, big debates about rating agencies, of opinions, of value judgments where only certain kinds of risk elevate to even be called risk, i.e. when Black folks and minorities rebel and insist on greater social services, uh, or when labor folks in, in, you know, within labor unions go on strike, that emerges as a risk. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it's a set of judgments that has a kind of technocratic gloss, that has a kind of quantitative thrust, but oftentimes when you look at the documents on what they're drawing in order to come up with the standardized rating to make cities commensurate and, and uh, to interchangeable commodities, the information is actually is old. It's, uh, it's sometimes stale. Garbage in, garbage out, they always say, right? Well, it's really, I mean, that's quite the case with digital data brokers, too. I mean, people who are experts are like, you know, this is basically an industry based on bullshit, you know, that projects its own authority and it, it should be debunked. I want to quote another bit that you write, though, but I mean, just as with individuals, these credit scores both reflect inequity and then compound them, right? And so th they do matter, even if they're 
kind of baseless and they're biased. And you write that evaluations of municipal creditworthiness were, and we could say are, more than mere constructions of racial inequity. They actively constructed it. And so those, you know, those are forces that shape our, our social reality. Um, but I want to get into what you, you use the word dynamism, right? So they're trying to freeze a dynamic living thing. And so they're responding to current events and they're responding to these uprisings that you just mentioned. And I just want to quote you. You talk about how uh, in the 1960s, bankers were speculating in the future, the futures market in riots. What does that mean? What are the consequences of this speculation? You know, as I read the great work of my colleague, Elizabeth Hinton, who's made the, the pretty persuasive case on the importance of the uprisings and triggering or certainly uh, accelerating mass incarceration. Whether you think about the work of Russell Rickford, who's thought about uh, the importance of these riots and uprisings for Black revolutionaries who saw these as proto-revolutions or you know, leading to broader revolutions of a kind of internal colony uh, similar to the, the uprisings uh, uh, in the Global South. Basically, I'm very much convinced that the riots, the uprisings, uh, rebellions of the 1960s really are at the center of explaining so many of the, the kind of so much of our world today. So one of the things I try to do is think about the importance of uprisings, whether it be in Newark, Watts, and in San Francisco, forgotten case, oftentimes forgotten and, and rarely mentioned of the murder of a 16-year-old named Matthew Johnson, which you know catalyzed a, a great deal of political agitation in the city and, and pushed city officials to put bond issues to finally try to invest in neighborhoods that had been neglected for you know 17 plus years, Black neighborhoods in particular. And the whole point was, if we do not put a bond issue to invest in schools and parks, our famed liberal city will go the way of Watts and Newark, right? In other words, if we don't invest now, the cost to borrow is going to go way higher, right? Because now we have a rebellious city. Now it's the sense that San Francisco is just like these other places, and uh, we may be paying higher interest rate penalties uh, as a result. Uh, so the uprisings, you know, push city officials in that direction. But also what you see is uh, the kind of speculation in riot futures. So I'll never forget, I think it was a document maybe in the Wall Street Journal uh, or the bomb buyer uh, where it was like maybe it was like April or May. And the point was like the long, hot summers are going to continue. That is, we're going to see another round of uprisings. And the whole point was you can secure tax-exempt interest income without tying up your capital in a rioting city for 20, 30 years by way of purchasing short-term debts. So you see, in other words, a kind of speculation that a riot is going to happen, right? So this is like, it's not the summertime, right? I mean, the, 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 what riots or uprisings they're talking about is based off of the previous years and trying to make the case that why not invest in these short-term debts lend your funds to, uh, to talking about bondholders or, or creditors, lend your funds to, say, uh, Cleveland, and in six months or nine months, get your principal back and all the while collect taxes and interest income, oh, by the way, in the context of rising interest rates, right? Oh, by the way, of uh, being able to leverage the possibility of a riot 
uh, among the ever elongated list of potential penalties to gain the upper hand over municipalities. And again, you can get your, mon your money back in nine months to a year, maybe six months to a year, and then you can invest it elsewhere. And you don't have to worry about whether the city is going to stand 10, 15 years later which is usually the life of a bond. So you see, in other words, the uprisings trigger, not wholesale, it's not you know, an abdication or avoiding of bond, long-term bond issues, but the emergence of another kind of debt instrument, short-term debt, um, and you see uh, financial institutions actually trying to make the appeal to potential uh, secondary investors that you know riots are coming, let's shift your funds into short-term investments so there is a changing temporality of debt, right? Moving away from you know long-term investment to short-term to short-term returns, which is part of what my colleague, former colleague John Levy, describes as the, the turn towards uh, asset appreciation, right? Short-term asset appreciation, being able to rec recoup and and secure higher yields on speculation in real estate or short-term debts, uh, and you start to see this in the 1960s, and I think the riots, the uprisings. Uh, are, are a crucial part of that story. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online but they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. You have a lot of really good phrases in this book. So another one that really struck me was democracy was paradoxical for bankers. And so on the one hand, you know, we're talking about how they are responding to this democratic uprising, upheaval and demands for inclusion and much more than that for transformation. But they also, you know, the paradoxical, they also exploit democracy in some ways and talk about that conflicting attitude. So democracy, I first became aware of this idea. I first started to think about democracy as a paradox for bondholders. Uh, it was a report from a financial institution thinking about San Francisco's credit and the importance of investing in the city. And this was produced in the late 1930s, maybe 1936, I think. And so the, the kind of catalyst for, for, these, uh, for this institution was the, the background of the strikes, right? The thinking about the radicalism of striking workers in San Francisco, port workers, and the sense that like, you know, is there labor peace? Is that going to disrupt productivity? Is that going to disrupt the ability of the city to, to deliver timely payment to investors? Um, and so in this report, though, there was the sense that 
democracy is a good thing and democracy is liberal democracy in the sense of like basically voting for a bond issue was a good thing because it signaled the general population's willingness to support that issue, right? The sense that like, okay, if they approve it, then they're going to be, they more or less are committed to repaying the debt. And that's a good thing because you now have the backing of, of, of the electorate. But too much democracy is a bad thing, right? Because in the sense that, well, what if voters torpedo a bond issue that is seen as essential to growth, right? What if they say, you know what, as we see, for instance, going back to the 1960s, my chapter called Revolt, yeah, Black San Franciscans who, uh, through the Sun Reporter, a major African-American newspaper, more or less say, you know, look, for 20 years we've supported these bond issues. We've gotten very little in return. And until we get something in the form of infrastructural investment or uh, appointments to the Public Utilities Commission or some other kind of reward, we're going to encourage Black folks to boycott a bond issue and torpedo the local spending priorities uh, as expressed by city elites and, and through the bond referenda. So that is an example of withholding one's support and support that might have been seen as essential uh, to, to a bond issue passing. Or what if voters approve an issue that is seen as an anthem to local economic growth or a distortion of public spending priorities? So that's the paradox. On the one hand, uh, signaling the uh, willingness to support a bond issue. On the other hand, too much of it and you can torpedo uh, or see the passage of an issue that is, is seen as essential. Now, ultimately, the arc of this is, and we see this in the 1980s, at least in San Francisco, that's the place I know best, is the sense that uh, you don't need voter input at all. Right? I mean, you can find a way, more or less, to get the bond issued and circulated and underwritten without uh, securing the input. Uh, and by that point in the 1980s, it's what I describe in the book as kind of bondholder supremacy, the supreme confident that, you know, whether the electorate torpedoes a crucial issue or passes an issue seen as, you know, uh, objectionable, bondholders have great confidence that they're going to be repaid from some source because by this point, whether through property taxes or other uh, regressive uh, revenue generating measures, so many of the populace is conscripted into this debt arrangement that they have great confidence that um, that democracy is kind of, you know, it becomes more of a, uh, a issue, a burden for local officials uh, than it is a concern of bondholders. And the local officials more or less are afraid, again, of torpedoing an issue. And in the late 1980s, you have the example of city officials saying like democracy is a problem because if we have to actually formulate a bond issue, which takes time, right, and wait for an election, whether it be in June or November, we might risk the chance to refinance the lower interest rates. So the argument is like if we miss that window, now you as taxpayers, you as residents have to have to pay that higher interest rate. And so that's the argument of like democracy. You got to get a deal. Yeah. Democracy is a burden. <laughs> democracy is is um, prevents us from striking while the iron is hot, which is, you know, uh, uh, I suppose, an important argument in terms of dollars and cents. But, you know, ultimately, it, it's it's a problematic argument in terms of democratic input uh, of folks who have to live and, and um, live in a city. Right now, it seems right that the, there is really no paradox here. I mean, these are arrangements that are 
you know, anti-democratic, right? It's actually a way for financial priorities to take precedence over democratic priorities. I mean, the, the, the debt must be paid at any cost. And so that is, I mean, we saw mayors, you know, the city of Chicago prioritizing paying bondholders versus, you know, social spending during a pandemic. And so this is, whether it's conspiratorial or convenient, right? It's like, okay, this is great. We, we just, we, we don't have time for democracy, but also we can't do democracy because we've got to, got to make these payments or else um, we'll lose investor confidence. So the debt collective, you know, we've talked a bit about it. We work to raise debtor consciousness. And I think one thing that uh, your book really shows is that there's, there is a creditor consciousness at work, right? A cl- and it, you know, we could talk about whether they're really a class or, but they're definitely cl- have class consciousness. And you have a chapter called Fraternity uh, and a section of that chapter called White Male Bonding, which is a very good double entendre. But yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of got to know these guys through their their documents, through their uh, channels of communication. You know, tell us a bit about them and what it means for there to be a creditor consciousness. I mean, it means that they're organized. I mean, you you actually tell the story of these guys becoming organized so they can act as a an economic and political force. And they're interesting. I mean, at one point, you're not talking about contemporaries, but you talk about New Deal era bondsmen, and you you make clear that they're not anti-statist, which makes sense because they want that sweet public money. <laughs> yeah, not anti-statist because uh, they want the public money. The bond market brings together state, local governments, and private investors. I mean, you can't be anti-statist, especially when the primary draw is tax-exempt interest income, right? You know, so so that's an input. That was an important point. I, I don't think I, I I probably could have done a bit more, said a bit more, but maybe the point was clear enough. Um, but yeah, so just creditor organizing. And I've talked to some folks before about like, you know, should we disaggregate creditor power? And I think we should, right? I wouldn't say that Creditors are a unified class, and we we see that in uh, bankruptcy settlements where certain kinds of creditors who are, quote unquote, first in line get theirs, while others take dramatic and drastic haircuts. Uh, So even though one could be a bondholder, it goes back to your earlier point about certain kinds of bondholders and creditors, uh, depending on where you fall in that hierarchy of creditors, are um, are going to fare far better than, than others. Um, one of the things I see uh, is, is kind of maybe not so much in the book because I, I depart from the, the 1930s. I take off from the 1930s. Is Remember, go, going back to our, the early part of our conversation was thinking about the weakness of creditors, right? In the sense that like in the late 19th century, the fear is that, you know, you had a council of buccaneers and rascals and, and that's the whole moral discourse. Um, and that to me spoke to the weakness of creditors. Uh, but by the early 20th century, you see a shift. And, and there's a great uh, book on the history of municipal bonds by a guy named A.M. Hillhouse. And what he notices is in the early 20th century, he sees creditors begin to organize. They form a quote unquote solid front. They begin to form protective committees. They start to rely on federal district courts because they believe that unlike state courts, the federal judiciary would be free from quote partisan politics. And of course, you see the development of the surveillance of city finances, again, through the Daily Bomb Buyer, Moody's and other 
other sellers of financial information. So you see creditors begin to organize uh, in the early 20th century. And so that is an important story that, again, is, is, is born out of, it flows from the profound weakness in the late 19th century, where even if you know uh, a state court agrees to honor the claims of a defaulting, uh, of a creditor holding a def uh, defaulted piece of debt, um, it becomes a hollow remedy because if the municipality doesn't have it, they don't have it. Um, and, you know, in, outside of parts of New England in the late 19th century, Hill House tells us um, outside of New England, municipal property is exempt from creditor claims. Right? It's removed, right? In other words, a creditor can't just come in and say, this here is mine. Uh, Hill House notes that in some of the New England states, the property of individuals and corporations might be seized within the defaulting municipality. But um, that is why he says that more or less, even when they win, quote unquote, it's a hollow remedy. So out of that, you see creditors begin to, municipal bondholders begin to, to organize. Um, and through those three ways, protective committees, turn into the federal district courts and through the surveillance of city finances. Um, the guys I look at, uh, most notably uh, a gentleman by the name of Alan K. Brown, is he, he's a great character for many reasons from the standpoint of storytelling it's with without his personal papers which he left at uc berkeley i don't write this book and he is interesting because he's basically pissed off that he's somebody who believes he's generating incredible value for bank of america but he's not getting his just due he's like we work in cramped offices we don't have the right personnel uh, and this is these are arguments and, and, and issues he's raising up until the early 1950s. Uh, and so that was in a set of so what he does is he leaves me the archives or I found the archival papers to begin to think about one. It's not natural power. Right. In fact, there's great a great deal of frustration. Folks feeling like they're not getting their just due. And he writes all these copious reports that then allow me to kind of stitch together and think and historicize the bond market. And so in his archives, in addition to these reports on uh, on the business of debt, uh, on attempts to try to get more personnel, more office space, I found um, these uh, papers, uh, newspapers, uh, satirical papers uh, called the, the tapeworm. And the tapeworm is really a pornographic, deeply patriarchal, uh, elitist publication that more or less jokes about ripping off customers, jokes about, you know, there's, I won't even repeat some of the jokes. Um, they're just, they're just extreme. I, I build off uh, an anthropologist name. I think her name is Rosemary Joyce, who describes this as joke lore, the sense of like jokes, quote unquote, uh, just friendly banter as a way of deepening trust this publication as a way of kind of deepening a pedagogy of bond finance through double entendres, par value, meaning, you know, the price of a bond, but also the 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 price or rather the, the size of a woman's breasts. I mean, all of these kind of double entendres they use to joke about uh, their secretaries and ripping other people off, which also deepens the trust, which is key to forming syndicates and underwriting bond issues. So that was the source allowed me to think about this as actually a small knit group of people, a fraternity, uh, who engage in the typical forms of fraternities or some fraternities in our 
contexts, uh, whether it be sexual violence, harassment, you name it. And to, to think about this as a small, tight-knit group and to see that, quote-unquote, joke lord, this kind of banter, as not a non, uh, uh, external to the bond market, but crucial to the business of debt. Without that trust, without the deepening of knowledge, there is no underwriting of bond issues. Um, and so it was through Brown's records, through his frustrations, uh, that allowed me to kind of stitch together that story, stitch together the history of the bond market, um, and to begin to think about his argument that like he wasn't getting his just due. And to say, and that helped me kind of denaturalize the idea that these financiers are at the top of the world, right? Because he feels like he's not. Um, he feels like he's not getting his just due, even though by the 1970s, he has a very different sense. He's very frustrated because he's on the outside of the fraternity. He's part of that passing generation. Uh, so there we could start to think about financiers, not just as a collective that doesn't change over time, but actually with a di different sense of sensibilities, values, uh, and having different relationships to, to state actors. Um, and that's important, again, to historicize financial power and not see it as this timeless, uh, inevitable, totally just insurmountable force. And that becomes crucial to thinking about pressure points, where to push, where not to push and so forth. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's a great segue because, it, you know, the, const the construction of these consciousness and these coalitions you know, it's helped along, right? When you have those interests where you're like, hey, hey, brother, we can make money together. <laughs> you know, they, they, but they still have to do that work. And, and, uh, and so the question then is, okay, how do we do the work to overthrow those guys? Um, because they're not needed. There are other sources of, of revenue. And you know, the reason we call people middlemen is because they're, they're in the middle there. I mean, so what, so I guess I, kind of two questions to, to close it off. And this one's not fully, it's kind of incohate percolating. You know, part of what's interesting about this topic is, are the dimensions of temporality and, and, and spatial, you know, geography. So it's, you know, you borrow, um, you make this point that often when we talk about debt, we talk about how it is an encumbrance on future generations. But you also talk about how the past, you say, well, we need to place more emphasis on the way the past is used to kind of discipline, constrain, shape, the opportunities or lack of opportunity in the present. But built into this whole system too is this, I guess this is what I'm kind of grappling with in this moment is, you know, these guys are placeless, right? Wall Street. And yet part of their power is that they tie this idea that finance, financing should be tied to a place. So one, you know, a municipality or an institution issues its bond, therefore nobody. And so the people invest in that bond could be geographically spread around you know, you have the, I guess, the privilege of making money off of this specific place's need for resources, but you don't owe them anything. You're not really, you don't have to invest in them, right? <laughs> um, and so I think part of what we need to do is explode that geographic limit and be like, no, we we owe things to each other. We're all connected. But it's just interesting how these these arbitrary temporal and geographic boundaries are used to shore up profit for some. So the first thing about what creditors owe a place and what, you know, the kind of consequences of abstraction, the consequences of borrowing from finance, financiers and individuals and institutions dispersed across a wide geography. You know, one of the things, and this is, this kind of goes back to Brown. Brown's critique in the early seventies is that a new cult of financiers felt no civic obligation to a local community. And 
you know, look, we can, I can play gotcha and take Brown and say, ah, you said you cared about the civic obligate, your civic obligation to the city of San Francisco, but did you really? But honestly, Brown is on bond screening committees. He's on local development committees. And his sense was, um, even though he steered public spending towards priorities that, that uh, to, towards investments that prior to prioritize a certain kind of economic growth, he believes that there's a civic obligation. He has a duty to these communities in his backyard, Bank of America in downtown San Francisco. I think he lived out in Walnut Creek. He would take Bart in or, you know, drive in the, the Bay Area Rapid Transit District into to the city. And so he says that there's a civic obligation that's now been lost in the 1970s. So even there on the point of dispersal and what folks owe, we can begin to kind of historicize that sense of a civic obligation, knowing that only certain people counted within the civic, within the body pop, uh, populace for uh, these financiers who nevertheless committed, to, had, had a uh, commitment to, to civic investment. So the other point about dispersal is very interesting. You know, the the kind of financial activism of the NAACP, for instance, or core and civil rights activists, uh, they take this up again, going back to the problem of funding segregated southern municipalities through the bond market. Is they they actually deal with this problem of dispersal. One tactic is to boycott and picket outside the office of a financial institution that has just underwritten a segregated bond. That comes much too late in the process. It's already been underwritten, right? So there's a place-based office, right? We're going to go outside their office space, create a hoopla, uh, and that'll be important in terms of building uh, popular support, perhaps securing uh, popular press coverage. But that action comes too late in the bond finance process, even though it's place-based, right? Uh, then there's another move towards court injunctions, right? To delay a bond sale, uh, to create a cloud of uncertainty over a bond issue in order to compel Southern segregated school districts to accelerate desegregation. So there is a less a long way of saying, um, and minus a ton of detail, uh, uh, an attempt to try to, of, of civil rights activists to try to think about dispersal and where to strike. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you actually launch direct action techniques, nonviolent direct action techniques uh, when processes, bondholders are so dispersed over time. One way they thought about it was through local courts, right, which are place-based, but which can create a cloud, a legal, a cloud of legal uncertainty to perhaps obstruct a bond sale and to compel uh, district officials to accelerate desegregation. So anyway, that's, many folks have tried to think about dispersal. Uh, and, and again, to, to go back to my earlier point, we'd be wise to, to go back to the writings and ideas of quote unquote civil rights liberals, right? There's a way in which we have a way of relating to the NAACP and CORE and these other quote unquote, you know, liberal thinkers as, ah, eh, they're just accommodationists, ah, eh, they're not radical enough, but they were very much interested in thinking about the problem of finance. Uh, and we would be wise to go back and, and sit with their thought in their campaigns. Okay, then you asked another point about you said that you said that these middlemen are not needed. And I want to maybe somewhat controversially, not so much push back, but get your thoughts on this, especially around climate finance. And I've said to this this stuff to folks before, right? If we think about climate breakdown and ecological destruction, 
if we think about the kind of minoritarian rule in Congress, the regressive reactionary composition of the Supreme Court, the difficulties of passing a basic infrastructure program torpedoed by just two senators, right, to deliver timely aid to people who really need it. That takes a long time. Even the grants and loans would take a long time, even if that weren't the case, but it is the case. And it goes back to something I said before, financial markets in the bond market is a, is a very fast way to raise a ton of funds to finance very costly infrastructure projects. And given the existential crisis of climate breakdown and climate change, are finance financiers in the bond market, are they not needed? Are they unnecessary given the dilemmas of, in terms of raising funds through you know, federal grants and loans, for instance, versus, uh, and, and also considering the, the impending doom, rising sea levels and so forth. And so I won't say ever really that they're needed, but I will say that in this moment, given that A, it takes so long to get Congress to do anything, given the reactionary composition of the court to potentially block that which might be needed. And then I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a great piece by Muhit Mokim, who wrote for the Long Political Economy blog, The Importance of Grassroots Finance, right? Removing public pensions from Wall Street. But she's, or they are writing about uh, that form of grassroots finance in terms of housing and land sales, not infrastructure. So how do we actually raise the funds for critical infrastructure that costs a ton to say nothing of maintenance? And so I, I won't say that, you know, these intermediaries are necessary per se, but I'd like to know how else we raise the funds, especially around the threat of climate change. Um, and how do we do so immediately? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think the question is one of, of power as much as anything else. So I think this is a, a socialist podcast. So, you know, I think if we take the really long horizon, then we think, okay, you know, there's a whole restructuring of the economy. But I, I think you're right. If we're thinking in the kind of like nearer, nearer term, maybe one way of saying it would be, you know, we don't need middlemen, but we'll still need mediators, right? Like we don't need people to take the cut and to profiteer off of public desperation. So I was even thinking as we were talking about credit rating agencies, you know, even in a even in this socialist horizon, we'd still need some sort of credit rating. We'd want to say, is this thing sustainable? Does it advance democracy? Right? Does it enrich people on a on a community level? Right? Like we'd still want to rate these things. Right now we're rating for the wrong things and we do, we're not counting the things that matter. So I there's so many, I'm always struck by the fact that so much of financial language is actually pretty beautiful. The word credit means trust, right? Mutual funds, <laughs> bonds, right? We want to uh, laden those things with all of the, the the meetings that are kind of late in there and have been corrupted. But yeah, we need, um, you know, I, we need we need resources. We need to expand the boundaries of the, the present. We need credit. Um, I think there are places where, you know, and, and there has been a more of a discussion about this since the pandemic. There is federal funding. There's the potential too for the Fed to lend at zero interest to compete with these uh, these financial markets. So it seems to me that yeah, we need some competition <laughs> in the near term. Um, and uh, but ultimately, how do you build the power to direct these financial markets to make these necessary investments? And so that's you know I think this example you've given of the civil rights. Uh, era uh, efforts in this direction, 
the politicization of debt, the the idea, for example, that I brought up of uh, municipal debt audits actually comes from Greece after the financial crisis, that we need to bring this stuff into the open, politicize it, insist that it is a matter of democratic concern. But then ultimately, we need to use another financial word, right? We need leverage over these people. And yeah, that's tough to build, man. I'm in it. Yeah, uh, it's tough yeah. to build. <laughs> I know. You're, it's so real. And I think um, this is where I, 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 I don't know really how I feel about this, but I'm just going to offer it to the listeners here. Make it hopeful because we're closing up. Yeah, yeah. What I heard was like we need to wrestle with terms and institutions, right? Wrestle with terms and say credit, uh, bonds, these are mutual funds. These are things that we have to assume, take back, cast new meaning, uh, rid of the worst connotations. Um, so there's a there's a, a battle over terms and language, and then also institutions like you brought up with the Federal Reserve. I mean, although the municipal liquidity facility was like, I wrote about it, you know, as did many other folks in that moment during the early part of the pandemic and just what happened at, in the, the squandered opportunities, really the obstruction um, that that occurred, but still the f- struggle over institutions. Um, and and then you also mentioned like, well, what is fi- the financial sector trying to do around uh, environmental, social, and governance investing. Right? What they're trying to do is say that, like the usual ways in which we evaluate risk. Well, some would say, I'll just say that you know, there's a there's a totally legitimate reason to be skeptical as to see ESG as just the recent example of the so-called consciousness capitalism. Right? Like we can that's that that's legitimate. But there's also a, a move by folks in financial institutions, uh, nonprofit organizations to say that actually, you know, even if we begin with risk, uh, we can think about risk in other ways uh, and begin to build equity into that assessment of risk in ways that don't further punish municipalities, uh, for instance, for things that are beyond their control. Uh, or more to the point that can help channel resources inf- into infrastructure and social services in ways that provide a far more equitable outcome for the citizenry, for the body politic. Again, reasons to be skeptical of ESG investing, but that is an ongoing conversation. And so that's another point to mention. Like, this is not abstract. Like, folks in the financial world are doing the kinds of, there's a parallel conversation between what you and I are talking about and what those other folks are talking about. Um, and, um, you know, the question is, uh, is there a bridge there? Is it basically, uh, you know, on different sides and the differences are irreconcilable? Um, but, but, you know, at the very least, I think the climate finance and ecological destruction really does sharpen the dilemmas here, uh, especially when we think about uh, we don't have that much time and that's time is one thing that finance really has a mastery over. Yep. I think we can end here, which is that, you know, those of us on the left cannot afford <laughs> to use another financial word, right? We can't afford not to pay attention to these questions of of municipal and institutional finance because it's shaping our, our lives and our futures, whether we acknowledge it or not. Dustin Jenkins, thank you so much for joining me on The Dig. Astro, real pleasure. Uh, thank you so, so much for the invitation. And, um, you know, thank you to the listeners for, for tapping in. Destin Jenkins teaches history at Stanford University. He writes about debt inequality and the history of racial capitalism and is the author of The Bonds of Inequality, Debt and the Making of the American City. 
Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer, and of course, our go-to guest host at The Dig. She is the director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. She also co-founded The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, with the development of interest-bearing capital in the credit system, all capital seems to double itself and sometimes treble itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tammuz Frankel, Gemma Sack, and Mariel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe, assuming you don't do so already. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those ratings and reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people you know to listen to the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.